The Guardian. Hello, I'm John Dennis. Today, the climate gate scientists have been cleared of claims that they'd manipulated their data. There's no evidence that they indulged in uh, what people have said is uh, sort of tribal behaviour to try and keep out dissenting voices and to to effectively uh, pull the rug out from underneath research studies that might criticise their own findings. And we'll be looking at the legacy of the terror attacks on London's transport system five years ago today with the former mayor, Ken Livingstone. As mayors came from other cities, they were all quite in awe of how disciplined Londoners were, how rapidly the city got back to normal, and this complete lack of any lingering tension. And the Muslim writer Murtaza Shibli. And Muslims feel victimised as there are questions about their belonging and their loyalty to the country. Guardian Daily. From guardian.co.uk. First, our top story, the climate scientists accused of dishonesty in their efforts to press the case for man-made global warming were cleared today by an independent inquiry. The review was set up after hackers published emails from the servers at the Climatic Research Unit at the University of East Anglia. The review was carried out by the senior civil servant Samuel Russell and it was commissioned by the university's vice-chancellor, Professor Edward Acton. The scientific findings show there was nothing to hide, absolutely nothing to hide. It is pure, the science. But the point is that that's not good enough. Just because there's nothing to hide, you nevertheless mustn't, out of irritation or impatience or lack of time, fail to respond. Climate change sceptics said the scientists had subverted the peer review process and tried to silence their critics. I asked The Guardian's environment correspondent, David Adam, whether the review says they did fudge their results. No, categorically not. Effectively, it clears them of that central allegation. It says says there's no evidence that they did. And in fact, it says that their rigour and honesty is above reproach. And what about the other chief allegation facing these scientists that they attempted to silence their critics? Same, really. Um, the, the, it was slightly more qualified, but effectively it clears them of that as well. There's no evidence that they indulged in uh, what people have said is uh, sort of tribal behaviour to try and keep out dissenting voices and to to effectively uh, pull the rug out from underneath research studies that might criticise their own findings. I, again, it says no case to answer. Does that mean that the scientists are completely exonerated? Uh, not quite. I mean, it, it, effectively, it clears them of all the major charges, the stuff that they would have got fired for um, if if it had been proven. Um, they were criticised in quite strong terms about what's been characterised as a lack of openness. Um, I think it's pretty widely documented that this whole row probably flared up because of the way they responded to requests made under freedom of information laws. Effectively, the the report says that there were probably good reasons why they responded in the way they did, but they shouldn't have responded in the way they did. They should have been more open and made available some of the information that was being requested. But, I mean, the wider issue, much more important issue in many ways, the conclusions of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, do those assessments still stand? Yes. I mean, I don't think that any serious commentators really thought this was about the science of climate change. I mean, some of the more clownish people who, who talk about this issue have, have tried to extrapolate to that. But, but I think the serious questions and the questions that this review looked at were over the behaviour of a handful of scientists in quite specific areas. Will they be uh, handling freedom of information requests differently from now on? That's what the university has promised. 
they were probably caught unawares, both by the seriousness and the scale of, of some of the requests that were put upon them. I, I think there is sort of an unwritten rule in climate science that you hand over anything to anyone who's a professional. You know, I think you know some people have said if you have a master's in climate science or an associated kind of discipline, that was kind of the unwritten bar at which people would hand over their data. I think what this case has made clear is that, that scientists can't pick and choose who they respond to in that way. How much damage has this affair done to the reputation of climate science amongst the public at large who may not be you know, aware of some of the details of it? You would have to think that it has had a negative impact. I mean, you can't imagine that it's been a positive impact, really. Um, although the evidence is, is a bit hit and miss about um, whether the public have have taken this on board and have subsequently decided that global warming isn't as much a problem because there was also a fuss about the report of the IPCC and melting glaciers it was a very cold winter we had the collapse in Copenhagen so so attributing what is largely a very small decline or relative small decline in in the number of people who think climate change is a problem in recent surveys is difficult um, I think the, the big problem is that the people who insisted this was a conspiracy, climate change was a conspiracy, and that these emails showed that, will not be swayed by any number of reviews and independent conclusions that that's not the case. It's what psychologists call a self-sealing problem, where effectively all the evidence that you show that this is not a conspiracy merely adds to the sense that it is a conspiracy, because look, they wouldn't be doing all that to show it wasn't a conspiracy unless there's something to hide. And essentially, it's impossible to win that argument. So I think I think we have to move on from this. I think people will inevitably call it a whitewash. They'll inevitably keep coming up with the same sort of nonsense. But I do think there has to be an acknowledgement in the wider sort of scientific community and the political community that it's not really climate scepticism that's holding us back on action on climate change. It's the fact that it's very difficult and very expensive. David Adam. And there's full coverage today at guardian.co.uk slash environment. I'm John Dennis. You're listening to Guardian Daily. Five years ago today, 52 people were killed and more than 700 were injured in a series of suicide bombings on London's transport system. The anniversary was marked by survivors and bereaved families today with private gatherings at the memorial in Hyde Park and at the sites of the four attacks. In the Commons, the Prime Minister David Cameron led the tributes. Thank you, Mr Speaker. As the House will be aware, today is the fifth anniversary of the 7th of July terrorist attacks on central London. I'm sure everyone in this house, people in our country, will remember where they were and what they were doing when that dreadful news came through. Our hearts should go out to the families and friends of those who died. They will never be forgotten, and our thoughts are also with those who were injured physically and mentally by the dreadful events of that day. It was a dreadful day, but it is also a day that will remain, I believe, a symbol of the enduring bravery of the British people. So how have the bombings of the 7th of July 2005 affected Britain? We asked some young people who were at school in West London at the time of the attacks. Hi, my name is Azina Aslam. Um, I come from a Muslim background and I went to a school where a lot of the students were from the Asian community. I know like a lot of people were worried about, I guess you would say, the people outside of the school and the people that they didn't know how they were going to react to them. Um, I knew like a few people who were scared of wearing headscarves because they found out like what people, other people across the country would like 
doing towards Muslims. Not me, but I had a few friends who, I guess they, become, they became more closed off from how they used to be. And I guess they kind of banded together with people of the same religion. I'm Jay Badricha. Um, I come from a Hindu background and I went to Cranford Community College, which was a multicultural school in the sense that it was mainly made up of Asians. I, I realised at school that there was a sort of split uh, between people calling themselves either British Muslims or British Hindus or British, British Sikhs. There was that, there was that segregation on, on a religious ground rather than just we're an Asian community and we should stick together because we're we are a minority in, in, in the wider country and it just happened in that people had to make this group to make it aware that they're not a terrorist, that you shouldn't see me with this group because I'm not a terrorist. I, I think it became really important to prove your non-terrorist identity. My name's Elizabeth Stevens and from September 2001 I attended Cranford Community College which is a stone's throw away from Heathrow Airport and next to Southall. You know, my class was made up of a mixture of students, predominantly Asian, Muslims, Hindus, Sikhs, and I was one of the few white children in my year. Like after the 7th of the 7th, um, we all came back from work experience and there was a different, the atmosphere was different. I mean, it was very close to the time and we're not far from the airport, so everyone was so worried that we were too close for comfort. Um, and you could feel a change in the atmosphere and I don't know if it's something that I never picked up on because I was so used to being in a multicultural environment but you did see people making inappropriate jokes and people becoming more wary of them. You saw like some Muslims you know trying to be different and trying to sort of not hide from their culture but you know they they try to make it very clear that they're not an extremist and they go out of their way to do that um, and like Hindus and Sikhs, I've, I've never known them before to want to make it so apparent that they're not a Muslim. When I go out with my friends, you know, I've got other friends that are like, oh my God, you hang out with so many Indians and all that sort of stuff. And I do think that a lot of people are more open about prejudice now because they think that they can turn around and go, well, there was the bombing and people do use it. I do think that the segregation's going to be there for a long time. Today, the Mayor of London, Boris Johnson, said the victims of the July the 7th bombings would never be forgotten. Five years ago today, the then Mayor of London, Ken Livingstone, was praised for articulating the public mood after the attacks. He said, addressing the bombers, whatever you do, however many you kill, you will fail. Earlier today, outside a coffee shop near London's City Hall, I asked Ken Livingstone why he was so sure about that and whether he still thinks that's the case. I've lived all my life in London and I'd watched it go through very difficult times and tensions as a wave after wave of immigrants came from different parts of the world. And I just watched the city become comfortable with that. And it, clearly the Al-Qaeda strategy was that they wanted the maximum number of civilian deaths. But then a backlash, I, what they really wanted was a lot of Muslims to be beaten to death by angry crowds. So they could say to the Muslim world, look, there's no future, there's no role, you'll never be accepted by the West. And so the most important thing I had to get in my speech was that it should be unifying and that no one turned on anybody else. And that's the whole force of it. I mean, I think that was successful. I, just, I, I, I was reading the mood of London. We didn't have a single physical attack by one Londoner on another. And in the years that followed, as mayors came from other cities, they were all quite in awe of how disciplined Londoners were, how rapidly the city got back to normal. 
and this complete lack of any lingering tension. I mean, the only problem we had was after getting the initial response right, then Blair went off on this mad campaign to you know, make it a crime, to glorify terrorism, have 90-day detention, and fractured that. And eventually all his proposals were thrown out by the judges and the lords. Because a lot of Muslims have said that they've felt stigmatised by some of the government policies that you've mentioned and also by the media um, since July the 7th, 2005. Well, there's a very good article in The Guardian today about the, the work that Lambert, who was the head of the, the Muslim Contact Unit in MI5, has, was, has been doing. And he just says there, I mean, it was the government's refusal to accept that the war in Iraq and attitudes to Israel had played a part in their decision to bomb. Blair's line was that it, if it hadn't been Iraq, there'd have been another excuse. Well, I don't actually believe that. And the majority of Londoners didn't either. Do you regret your association with uh, Islamists, such as Sheikh Yusuf al-Karadari? No, if you actually read what Lambert says, and he's quoted many other areas over the years, he thinks that the link with Karadari is absolutely crucial in keeping lots of disillusioned young Muslims from getting caught up with groups like Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda hate and loathe Karadawi because he's part of a tradition of Muslim theologians trying to rework an understanding of the Quran so it can engage with the West and the modern world. Leading figures on the moderate wing of Islam like Karadawi will stake out positions while still being denounced by the Wahhabi sect, which of course is linked to the Saudi royal family. And he, you're either going to say, we're going to ignore all Muslims until they completely agree with everything we already do in the West, or you engage with the group that is looking to get some engagement. Do you think London's a safer place now than it was five years ago? Since 9-11 and the start of this heightened phase of tension between America and the Muslim world, we've had 52 people killed in London. And I think people make a rational assessment. You know, this we've stopped almost all the attacks except that one from getting through there would have been more and you know like my parents generation they, they a lot of them like I mean, my mum didn't go down the bomb shelters she found it so awful the conditions down there she thought I'll take my risk stay in my bed and get a good night's sleep. Ken Livingstone well, Britain's Muslims have felt stigmatised following the 7th of July attacks. Murtaza Shibli is the author of a new book, 7-7 Muslim Perspectives. A legacy of violence associated primarily with Islam and Muslim ideologies. Uh, lots of uh, suspicion, securitization of Muslims en masse, while Muslims have been seen as a problem uh, through a security angle and through a security prison and Muslims feel victimized as there are questions about their belonging and their loyalty to the country. What role has the government played in this stigmatizing of British Muslims? I think government has played a very big role, whether they have done it uh, deliberately or because of their ill-conceived policies. I think it is because more because of their ill-conceived policies. For example, uh, after 7-7, I don't think government had any clue how to deal with the issue. And then they came out with these really hard-hitting policies or rhetoric of Tony Blair saying that now the rules of the game have changed. 
and possibly blaming all the failure on Muslims and then curtailing civil liberty. Uh, and then, for example, counterterrorism policies like prevent, which have actually stigmatized Muslims more. And because they have been particularly singled out, it seems that it has backfired because, in my own opinion, while working with Muslim communities up and down in the country, I think this has discouraged them from having an honest debate about extremism and terrorism within Muslim ranks. We heard earlier in the podcast from Ken Livingstone, who was criticised um, when he was mayor for associating with uh, Islamists such as uh, Sheikh uh, al-Qaradawi. Do you think his approach was wrong? We say that we should engage with people in order to understand their political point of view and also to contain them within to, so that they remain within the realm of politics, whether we agree with them or not. I think Ken Livingstone's approach was very good. In fact, now we're talking about talking with Taliban in Afghanistan as well. There's more of a general acceptance that British foreign policy plays a role in the way Muslims in this country have felt disaffected. Do you think that's true? That is true to a great extent. The government itself has admitted it, although indirectly. When we talk about British youth, being Muslim youth being influenced by what happens in uh, Gaza, for example, or in Afghanistan, or in Iraq, we are admitting it that it has an influence. And because of our role, it has an influence. Britain's security services believe that there are still uh, mainly young Muslims who um, are intent on committing terrorist atrocities. Um, how does the British Muslim community, uh, the wider community, deal with that? This demand on Muslims that they hunt down these youth who are young, uh, who are hell-bent on terrorism, is very unrealistic. First of all, there are no a Muslim community is very young in this country. We do not have enough institutions built. Uh, we we are one of the least developed uh, in very many uh, aspects. And how can Muslims? How can Muslims uh, hunt down these? Are we supposed to go on hunting trips around the country, up and down the country? Uh, the f are there any Muslims who are hellbent? I believe security analysis is right. But how can we deal with them? I think Muslims as such, as Muslim community, what they can do is confront extremism when it appears to be there, uh, which I believe all of them are doing. Majority of them are doing. That's why uh, these extremists are very, very isolated. Murtaza Shibli and his book 7-7 Muslim Perspectives is published by Rabita. Well, as we've heard, the 7-7 attacks on London prompted the Tony Blair government to press through a raft of anti-terror laws, as The Guardian's Home Affairs editor, Alan Travis, explains. In the words of Tony Blair in a famous uh, press conference in Downing Street on the Friday after the bomb attack, he said that he was intending to uh, change the rules of the game forever as far as terrorists were concerned, and he outlined a 12-point a plan to shake up the counter-terrorism laws. Uh, foremost amongst that plan was a proposal to introduce uh, 90 days pre-charged detention, which is an issue which uh, almost came to uh, bitterly divide the Labour Party uh, and was probably the only issue on which uh, Tony Blair, I think, remember, lost a Commons vote. Uh, amongst the other, uh, in the, within the package also was a new strategy of what he then called uh, deportations with assurances, which 
the government is still uh, five years later struggling to implement and uh, a number of other changes uh, some of which uh, were being abandoned and dropped such as uh, banning uh, extremist groups such as Hizba Tahir which the coalition government is uh, pledged to look again at after 9-11 we had the introduction of the Belmarsh uh, regime which was essentially uh, indefinite detention for foreign terror suspects which subsequently the courts and the House of Lords ruled as a a breach of human rights, and 7-7 marked sort of phase two in uh, Britain's counter-terrorist laws, which was a a loose collection of weaponry from uh, control orders for British subjects were introduced after 7-7. We have the whole question of pre-charge detention, as I mentioned, and the growth of surveillance and uh, a doubling, therefrom, of the uh, security budget as well. Uh, and a, a rapid and sharp growth in the numbers of recruitment of MI5 and Special Branch. Is a terrorist attack more or less likely than it was five years ago? Before the Christmas uh, airline plot last Christmas, uh, the state of official alert in Britain had gone down and officially been uh, reduced one level. But uh, since the Christmas bomb attack, we're now still at the... Uh, I think it's the second highest state of alert, which means that a terrorist attack is considered likely, but not imminent. You know, now that the coalition government is looking at ways of slashing the Home Office's budget, do you think that this sort of post-77 era of surveillance and so on um, is coming to an end? Well, it was interesting that when John Yates, who is the new head of counterterrorism for Scotland Yard, Yates of the Yard, uh, made a private speech at ACPO, the Association of Chief Police Officers annual conference last week, in which he kind of made the kind of veiled threat that if his counterterrorism budget was cut, then the public would get it was immediately slapped down by Francis Moore, the cabinet minister, as being alarmist and irresponsible. And I thought that was quite interesting change of tenor, uh, the attitude of the coalition government ministers to uh, that kind of warning from the police. And previously, the Labour government had almost seen whatever the counter-terrorist police asked for in terms of legislation, then strenuous efforts were made to try and secure it. And it seemed to me as though there was a new uh, spirit afoot, which was actually to question very sharply and deeply such demands. Whether it actually sees any kind of retrenchment in counterterrorism, I, I think is highly unlikely. I think that, uh, that that kind of counterterrorism card will secure their budget at the end of the day. Alan Travis. Today's edition of Guardian Daily was produced by Tim Maybe and Andy Duckworth. I'm John Dennis. Thank you for listening. Guardian Daily, news and reports from around the world.